Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles now and turn with me to the book of Acts 16 that we had just read from. Acts 16. Just as a means of introduction, I just want to read the first five verses again of Acts 16. Acts 16, verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Then came he to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman which was a Jewess and believed, but his father was a Greek which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him, and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters. For they knew all that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep, that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem." And so were the churches established in the faith, and increased in number daily. Let's unite our hearts again for a word of prayer before we have the preaching of the word of the Lord. Our Father, we come before you this moment in the name of Christ. And God, it is our desire that we would know the presence of the Lord Jesus in our midst. That God, that you would touch these lips of clay and allow them to speak forth the marvelous works of God. God, we pray that you would instruct not only our hearts, but instruct our minds. God, and instruct our minds and our hearts. God, we desire, Lord, that there would be this double working upon us, Lord, today. And God, we pray that we would understand the truths of your word. That God, that we would understand what it is that we believe and what it is that we adhere to as people of God God, we pray that the preaching would be with the power of the Holy Ghost today. And that, God, that you would work today, we ask in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. As you do recall, a couple weeks ago, we dealt with the pattern of the New Testament church. And we had looked at the book of Acts 2 and verse 41 and 42, where we saw seven distinct marks of a local New Testament church and anything that should characterize a church. We noted that there needed to be the salvation of souls. There needed to be those following Christ and water baptism. We noted as well there needed to be church membership practiced. We noted that there needed to be a devotion to the apostles' teaching. There needed to be a devotion to fellowship into the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And those are seven marks of what should characterize a church as we know it today. If you go to a church and they are not doing those things, I think by and large, we could say that it is not a church. This was the pattern of the early New Testament church, and you can find those things carried out throughout the book of Acts into the epistles. So that was the pattern of the New Testament church. But today I want us to consider more of the nature of the church itself. Now, today many take church government as a matter of little importance and not really worthy of discussion. But here you and I sit in a Presbyterian church. And no doubt on your way here, you have passed churches on the sign that said a Baptist church. You passed churches that might have said a Catholic church. You might have passed a church that said an Episcopal church. You might have passed a church that said a Congregational church. Now, what is the difference? Well, we know that there is a difference. And one of the major differences is the way in which the church governs itself. We are in a Presbyterian church because we, as a denomination, we as believers that are gathered here, and I hope you do, believe in a Presbyterian government. Now you might say, Pastor, yes, I agree, and I believe in a Presbyterian government. But could you take someone to the Word of God 
And could you show them, all right, show me where Presbyterianism is in the Bible. The Bible tells us, and Peter tells us, that we are to be ready, always to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. Now, some people think that this is a matter not worthy of discussion. But this is a wrong approach because the way we govern ourselves has great practical outworking on how we work as a church, how we live out our lives, my responsibility to the church, my responsibility to those in positions of leadership, the responsibility of the leadership to the congregation. So what are some types of church government? I have listed some of them, and let me just briefly define what they are. You have episcopacy, or it's been called prelacy. Uh, Episcopacy, a prelacy, is a hierarchical form of government. And the way you could define it is this. You have those that sit in the pew. Then you have the priest that is behind the pulpit. And then you have bishops that are above the priest in positions of authority. Then you have archbishops that are in positions of authority. This is seen as in the Church of England. And in the Roman Catholic system, beyond all of those, you have the Roman pontiff, which is known as the Roman, uh, the Roman Pope, and he is the uh, vicar of Christ, as it is said. And so you have this hierarchical form of church government. You also have the view of independency which no doubt many of you are familiar with, that each church is a local autonomous church, and most of these independent churches are ruled in a congregational fashion, that it is the congregation that makes all the decisions about the budget, that make all the decisions about uh, how things are going to go. There is no outside influence upon that local assembly, No outside church, no other denomination, no bishop, no pope can tell that individual church what they are going to do. There's no influence upon that church. They are autonomous, independency. And this is what the vast majority of all Baptist churches are, independent. Bible churches, independent. The congregational churches, by and large, are independent Uh, They might work through some association, but even the association has no authority over the local congregation. Then you have what is known as Presbyterianism. Presbyterianism is a different animal entirely uh, to independency or episcopacy. Presbyterianism says, essentially, uh, that the congregation votes... For their representatives, it's kind of similar to our government. You and I, on an election cycle, we go and we vote for our representative and for our senators. And they go to Washington, D.C., or they go to Columbia, and what are they supposed to do? They are to represent us, represent our desires, represent what we want as the people. And so this is what the elders are in Presbyterianism. They are voted upon by the congregation as representatives, not only in their own local congregation, but as we will see later on in Presbyterianism, there is not an independency amongst the churches. There is an interdependency among the churches. There is a connection between the churches. The churches are not totally autonomous and independent, but rather they are interconnected together by means of the presbytery. Now those that are voted upon as elders within Presbyterianism, uh, we must note first off that those that are elected as elders, they are equal. There is no elder in the presbytery and within our denomination. Those that are in presbytery, even the moderator of presbytery, all men are equal. There is no one above an elder. There is no bishop. All the elders are equal. And that's how that works. And so we're going to discuss this in more detail. But does it really matter? Does it really matter today what I'm speaking about? Well, let me say everything in the Bible matters. 
You know, I had a professor in Bible college, and he made a very good point. You know, some people say, well, you need to major on the majors and minor on the minors. But he said this, and I've never forgotten it. He said, but he said, class, you must remember this, that you cannot make music without minors. Minors are necessary. Everything in the Bible matters. And as students of the Scripture, it should be our desire to identify the marks of a biblical church and see what church government model fits best. We should be like those noble Bereans who search the Scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. I am in a case point of this. For many years in my own personal life, I was raised in a Baptist church. I was a Baptist minister for a number of years. But through searching the scriptures, I came to the conclusion that the Bible taught Presbyterian government. And for me, that was a big enough issue to say, you know what? I need to abandon ship and I need to go elsewhere because I cannot practice what I believe the Bible teaches and how the church is to function by and large. And so, as we go through our study, it will become clearer to you, I believe, that Presbyterianism is the system that is taught in the Bible. With that being said, I want to bring the message to you this morning, the marks of Presbyterian government. So, we want to look at seven, primarily seven things today. And don't be baffled, because most preachers normally have three points. And when you hear seven, you think, we're going to be here for a very, very, very long time. But it's not my intention to do that. It's my intention for you to get these things and to lay hold of them. Uh, there was an Irish Presbyterian that lived from 1824 to 1890 by the name of Thomas Witherow. He wrote a little booklet, if you can get your hands on it, which is an excellent book called The Apostolic Church, where he simplified Presbyterianism into six basic principles and marks. And we want to essentially use those six principles and marks, and we're going to expound on those today. And so the first thing I want you to notice, what is the mark of a Presbyterian church? And as we go through these, you will actually see how some of these could relate to episcopacy, some of these could relate to independency, but as we go through all the marks of what a church should look like, we will ultimately see that it is only Presbyterianism at the very end that stands as being the biblical model for church government. So the first thing I want you to notice is the office bearers in a church are chosen by the people. Now, this might not seem radical to you, but if you were raised, for example, in a Methodist church, you knew that you never really had a say in who your pastor was going to be. Because in the Methodist church here in the United States of America, the bishops that oversee a particular diocese place pastors where they see fit and where they believe they will be most effective. We also see this in uh, the Pentecostal, uh, Pentecostal denomination known as the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. They practice a very similar thing in a Pentecostal movement. We see this as well in the Episcopal Church, where the bishop places the priest where he so desires, and the people have no say on who their pastor, who their elders, who their leaders will be in their congregation. Now the question must be asked, is this what the Bible teaches? Do we find in the Bible bishops or various individuals placing people without the church's consent? Or do we rather find the church participating in those that will be their church officers? And I think very clearly from the book of Acts, we find that it is the people that choose their office bearers. I want you to turn with me to Acts 1. Look with me in Acts 1. 
in verse 21, as you know, our Lord has just ascended into heaven to the right hand of God in the glory. And we read in verse 15 that it was in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said the number of the names together were about 120. So notice there is 120 people here gathered with Peter. And we know that Judas by transgression fell and that there needed to be one to take his bishopric. We read that in verse 20. In his bishopric let another take, verse 21, Wherefore of these men which have companied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And notice this, And they appointed two. Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice and Matthias, and they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles." So you'll note here that the 120 that there were there gathered, it was they that appointed the two, and it was they that prayed, and it is they that cast the lot, and the lot fell upon Matthias. Now it is significant, some of uh, speculated of who is the 12th apostle, and we're not going to get into that whole argument today. But you must understand, <laughs> excuse me, even in the book of Proverbs, the Bible says a lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord, or it's every decision is of the Lord. So the Lord is so sovereign. He's not, even, he's not only just sovereign over the big matters of history, but he is sovereign even over the small matters of the casting of a lot or the rolling of the dice. This is something that God is sovereign over. And so in this way, God revealed to the church at that time who was to replace Judas. And they had a choice in the matter. Now I want you to also notice with me in Acts 6. Look with me there. In Acts 6, this is the uh, passage that regards the choosing of the first deacons of the church. In Acts 6, verse 1, And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Icanor, and Timon, and Parmaeus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they sent before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. So in Acts 6, we find that clearly the congregation was involved in the choosing of the deacons. Now, it was, the, it was the elders, if you will, that initiated it, but it was the people that chose their own officers, that chose these deacons. And you will note as well, in Acts 1 and Acts 6, that, it was that experience and character were listed for who the candidate should be. Now, the church is not left up to its own devices to decide, all right, I'm going to twiddle my thumbs, I'm going to bite my nails, I'm going to hope that I choose the right man to be a deacon. Well, the Bible actually gives us qualifications, actually, in Acts 6, that they needed to be men who were honest, men full of the Holy Spirit, and men full of wisdom, 
And we find further qualification in 1 Timothy 3. And these were to be the guideline, the rubric, if you will, by which a congregation was to choose its deacons. Note that the choice was made not by the leaders, but by the people themselves. And so we see that an apostle was chosen by the people. We see that deacons were chosen by the people. And by natural deduction, it would be the same of choosing elders. 1 Timothy 3 gives us the qualification for elders, for overseers, Titus 1 as well. And that decision was a decision that had to be made by the people. So the people choosing their officers was not just unique to the New Testament apostolic era, but it actually continues to this time. And if you as individuals that are part of this church, you decide uh, to cast your lot in, if you will, into the membership of this congregation, you will play a role in choosing who will be your elders. And who will be your deacons? The presbytery at large does not force you to say, all right, you're going to have this man to be your pastor whether you like it or not. That's not how it works. The congregation has a right to choose its own officers. So we can say, all right, well, we can see how this Well, independency agrees with that, and they do. Independency agrees that they have the right to choose their own officers. But at this point, episcopacy, the Roman Catholic system, is at strong disagreement because both systems, whether it is the Church of England, the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, the Methodist Church, or the Roman Catholic Church, they are in disagreement. They believe that bishops and those in high positions of authority have the right to place men where they see fit, and the congregation has no say in the matter. So we see from Scripture that that is an unscriptural practice. And this is why at the Reformation, this was a big difference And this was something that the reformers saw needed to be reformed. The changing of those that held positions of authority in the church. So number one, Mark of a Presbyterian church as the office bearers were chosen by the people. Number two, the office of bishop and the office of elder are identical. This is something we must understand. Look with me in the book of Acts 20, Acts 20. Verse 17, Acts 20 and verse 17. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. So here Paul is charging the elders of Ephesus. And notice in verse 17 they are called precisely that. They are called elders. But notice as Paul continues to address these very same men... What he calls them in verse 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. And note that word in verse 28, overseer. In verse 17, the word for elder here is that we get our word presbyter from. Presbyteros is the Greek word. In verse 28, for overseer, it is episkopos, which we get the word bishop from. And we will see that in a latter scripture. So here Paul calls these men at the same time elders and bishops. Note that he is not seeing a distinction here. He does not see an elder office and then a bishop office. He doesn't see one above the other. Are they are them being distinct? He actually sees them as identical. Look with me as well in Titus 1. Turn there with me. Paul does the very same thing here in Titus 1. Verses 5 through 7. Titus 1, 5 through 7. He says in verse 5, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. If any man be blameless... Now note, note he's now beginning to give the 
qualifications, or if you will, the qualities of a bishop, of an elder. If any man be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless. Notice the inter. The, the, the interchange of these words. They are used interchangeably. Elder bishop is describing the very same office. So we could say that elder is actually describing the office, is describing not just the office, but the maturity of the man in the office. That this is someone that is mature in their faith. They are mature in the word of God. But also they are called overseer. And this describes their work. So elder describes their maturity in their faith. Overseer, a bishop, describes their work, what it is that they are to be doing. They are overseeing the churches of God. And this is something that Paul did. Remember Paul in 2 Corinthians? He listed all the troubles that he had. And he said the greatest trouble that he had was the care of all the churches. Paul was a presbyter. He was an elder, but also he helped with all the other elders to oversee the churches of God that were scattered across the known world of that time. Some have said that the term bishop or overseer could have arisen to describe younger men who lacked gray hair, because that's what the word elder literally means, gray hair, but were equally able and qualified to shepherd the flock of God. You know, there are some men that are young, and remember what the Bible tells us in Timothy, Paul distinctly said to Timothy, let no man look down upon thy youth. But also, the youth is not to look down upon the age. There is a certain respect uh, that is to be given in each direction. But what Paul is saying is that a man that is young, even though he might be young in years, he can be mature in the faith. Even though he might not have gray hair, he can be mature in the faith and be equally qualified to be an elder, to be a leader in the church. Now, you and I must understand that the people that are to be elders in the church are not just people that have reached citizen age and older. Then those are the people that can be elders. And, and everyone else has to wait until they get uh, uh, subscriptions in the mail to AARP, and then they can finally become elders in the church. That's not how it works. God says that those that are mature in the faith, those that have these qualities are fit for that. So we see that the people have a right to choose their office bearers, but we see that there is this uh, identical use of the word bishop and elder. Now this is significant, because in the Roman Catholic system, in the Episcopal system, in the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, in the Methodist Church, they see a distinction between elder and bishop. The bishop has more authority than the elder. And the bishop can actually speak to the elder and tell the elder or the pastor where you, what you're going to do, where you're going to go. This is the church you need to pastor. But from the word of God, there is no such distinction. And this is why there was the need again in the 1500s for reformation. And this is why there was this movement towards Presbyterianism, because they begin to see that there was this identity, that there was an equal, uh, that the, the words were used interchangeably, bishop and elder, and there was not a bishop over here and an elder over here. They were interchangeable terms throughout Scripture. The third thing that we need to note that is a mark uh, Presbyterianism is the plurality of elders in each church. The church is not just to be governed by one man. I think we can see this clearly from the book of Proverbs. The Proverbs gives clear instruction that a multitude of counsel, there is wisdom. It says that when you go to war... It says, make sure that you use much counsel before you go to war. 
and that there needs to be much counsel in the decisions that are made in a local New Testament church. And it is not God's will that one man rule the people. Or you get a situation like Diotrephes in the book of 3 John who to have the preeminence and wants to be the shining star of the congregation who rejects people that are coming into the church. We don't want to have a diatrophies uh, type of mentality as a congregation, but the Bible does teach the plurality of elders in the church. In our scripture reading that we read prior to the message, we read in Acts 14.23, and I invite you to turn back there now to look at this verse with me. In Acts 14.23, I find it's good for you to see these things with your own eyes uh, and uh, that you can uh, allow it to register in your mind and your heart. In Acts 14.23, here is a clear verse that teaches the plurality of elders in the churches. Paul and Barnabas are now returning back to the churches that they had planted and established. And as they are going there, they are now in verse 23, when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. Notice in verse 23, they did not ordain an elder in every church. They ordained elders, plural, in every church. There is a need of plurality. And this is what we see. Is this not consistent with the Old Testament model, with what God gave to Moses? Remember, Moses thought that he could do everything all by himself, and he was judging the people. And Jethro came before him and said, Moses, what you're doing is not wise. He said, why don't you uh, orchestrate something where you have... Uh, organization, you have more men that are helping to govern the people. And there were elders chosen from amongst the people, and so it is in the church. It is not good that one man bear the entirety of the responsibility of a local congregation. Now, I know that there are times where this would practically be the case. In smaller congregations, smaller Presbyterian churches where there are no elders amongst the people and it is simply just the pastor, but you must understand that the pastor, even in that capacity, is not operating as the sole elder of the church. There is an interim session that is given to help instruct the pastor that he's not just calling all the shots, that there are other elders from other churches that are helping instruct him to make sure that he's making wise decisions in a congregation. So here the Bible is clear in this verse that there is a plurality of elders in the church. Now look with me in Philippians 1 in verse 1. Philippians 1 in verse 1 in this verse, if you want a verse that identifies what a church is, I think you can rightly go to Philippians 1.1. Philippians 1.1 tells exactly what a church consists of. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons, plural. So there you have what consists of a church. You have saints, you have bishops, and you have deacons. Those three groups consist of a New Testament church. Those three groups make up a New Testament church. You have the people, the saints, the believers. You have elders and you have deacons. So very clearly again, Paul is teaching the necessity of the plurality, not only of elders, but this reaches beyond to the other ecclesiastical office, which is the deacon. There should not even be just one deacon in the church. There should be a plurality of deacons 
in the church because they have their own meetings. They hold their own meetings. They have to make decisions as it regards the uh, financial and the outward appearance of the building. They have all the things they need to do, and they have their own budget, and they need to be held accountable as well. And multiple men hold the deacons accountable. So there is a necessity of plurality, not only within the spiritual leadership, but within the deaconate as well. So notice, uh, it was not, uh, as I mentioned, they were not ordaining elders. One elder per church, but a plurality. Philippians 1.1 speaks of bishops and deacons. Titus 1.5 speaks about the need of elders in every city to be ordained. As we had already looked at that verse. Not ordain a elder in every city, but ordain elders in every city. So this is speaking of plurality in one local church. Each church is to have plurality. It is a good thing to keep men accountable. And that's something as a congregation that you should desire. Because even you can have the most godly man to be your pastor. You can have the most godly man, but he is still a sinner. And this is something you must understand that pastors, elders, deacons, church people will fail you. But there's one person that will never fail you, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we have to consider what we considered in Sunday school. Here in His love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, He said, therefore we ought to love one another. And there's something you must understand, even the most godly man, the most godly pastor, even if he was just serving by himself, he is bound to make wrong decisions because he is not informed like he ought to be at all cases. And this is why it's good to have a multitude of counselors. But can I say as well that even sometimes a multitude can get it wrong. And that is where we as a congregation must be willing to, yes, we note the fault, and we must be willing to still love each other. There is no perfect church. There is no perfect outworking of church government, even though I believe this is the way it is to be, because we are sinners, and this is why we need grace, and this is why we need mercy. You have to understand that things are going to happen that will hurt you in a church. But you must understand, even though they do, we continue on in the grace of God, understanding that we can forgive and we go to each other. And Jesus told us how to deal with those things. And eventually we will get to it. The Bible even tells us how to deal with an elder who has gone in a wrong direction. How we are to correct elders, because there's a certain way in which you are to go to an elder and to deal with an elder in the context of a local New Testament church. So we want to move now to our fourth point. The fourth mark of a Presbyterian church was that ordination was the act of the presbytery of the plurality of elders. Ordination is an act of the presbytery of a plurality of elders. In Acts 6, verse 6, we won't turn back there, but that is a section where there is the laying on of the hands of the apostles upon the deacons, the ordaining of the first deacons by the apostles laying their hands upon them. And it is that body that possessed the power in the authority of ordination. Note with me this idea in 1 Timothy 4.14 as it regards the ministry. Now, some people might say, well, you know, presbytery and Presbyterianism, that's not even mentioned in the Bible, but I beg to differ. In 1 Timothy 4 and verse 14, you have a clear reference to the word presbytery. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 14. Paul says to young Timothy, Neglect not the gift that was in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Now, that's an interesting word, the presbytery. Now, we have heard that word, no doubt. You're in a Presbyterian church, and you're listening. Uh, you likely probably have attended a Presbyterian church, and, and you might wonder, what is this presbytery? 
Well, a presbytery simply defined as an assembly of elders. It is an assembly of elders that possess the authority of ordination. And here it was, an assembly of elders had gathered together to lay their hands upon Timothy. We have a reference to ordination further on in the scriptures. Uh, in verse number 22 of chapter 5 of 1 Timothy. So 1 Timothy 5 verse 22. Note what he says. Lay hands suddenly on no man. Neither be partaker of other man's sins. Keep thyself pure. This carries the idea of ordination. That those that have the ordaining authority, the power, ought to be, ought to be careful in whom they lay their hands and whom they bestow that authority to preach the gospel, not only the preaching of the gospel, but the performing of the sacraments of the church, that is, the uh, Lord's Supper and Holy Baptism. It is uh, the assembly of elders must be careful on whom they lay their hands, that they are not partaking in sin, that they're not ordaining a man to the ministry that is going to promote false doctrine and live a life of lasciviousness. Paul actually identifies, look with me now, in 2 Timothy 1, as one of those men that laid his hands upon Timothy in ordination. In 2 Timothy 1, verse 6, he says to Timothy again, this is Paul as an old man, the last letter that he write before his departure to be with the Lord. He says, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which was in thee by the putting on of my hands. So the, the assembly of elders that ordained uh, Timothy, Paul was part of that meaning that Paul participated with the other elders in the ordination of Timothy. And what is clearly taught here is that ordination is an act of a group of elders. And this act of the group of elders, these are elders of various churches, not just one individual church, but it is a group of elders collectively from churches that have the right to confer ordination and authority in this fashion. This is in great contrast with so-called apostolic authority or succession. The Episcopal view says that the bishop alone possesses the authority to grant ordination. Whereas Presbyterianism says no, it is the presbytery. And this is what we see in 1 Timothy 4.14. Who ordained Timothy? Not a bishop. It was a presbytery. It was an assembly of elders. Paul there as well. You know, Paul was an apostle, and many times the Episcopal Church, the Roman Catholic Church, they get their idea of a bishop by looking at the apostles. But it would, Paul, Paul the apostle did not just lay his hand alone upon Timothy and ordain him to the ministry. It was Paul with an assembly of elders. Paul was laying aside, if you will, this apostolic office and recognizing himself as an elder and ordaining Timothy as an elder. So ordination is an act of the presbytery. Fifthly, the fifth mark of Presbyterian government, there was the privilege of appeal to the assembly of elders and the right of the church to speak. The privilege of appeal to the assembly of elders and the right for the church to speak. We read from Acts 15 earlier, and I wish I could read the entirety of the chapter to you because it is extremely necessary and it is essential for understanding church government. Acts 15 actually provides many principles for the church today. Here you have the church gathering together. Here you have elders coming from many different churches to one location, to Jerusalem. And it has been rightly said that Acts 15 is the first general assembly, or the synod, or the presbytery meeting, whatever you want to call it. It was a meeting and gathering of elders. And in this gathering of elders, they came together to discuss a doctrinal question that had been brewing. 
I want you to notice it was not just the congregation. Notice as it regarded this question about needing to be circumcised in order to be saved. This was not a congregational meeting in which everyone in the church got together. All those that were average attenders on that day, they didn't all get together and say, all right, let's discuss this all together, elders and church people alike. No, this was a gathering of the elders. The gathering of the elders, and you'll notice that even the apostles attended. But the apostles, as they attend, they are operating as elders and not as apostles. Because they could have exercised their apostolic authority. Peter or Paul at any moment could have stood up and said, I am speaking now as an oracle of God. I am speaking from God directly, and this is what thus saith the Lord God. Because the apostles carried that authority. They had the authority to speak directly for God. You understand it is the apostles that gave us the New Testament. They were given divine revelation. Paul at many times received divine revelation directly from the Lord Jesus. We read this in Galatians chapter 1. That he received a revelation directly from the Lord Jesus as it regards the preaching of the gospel. But here as they gather together... They're not gathering together as bishops over here, elders over here, the congregation over here. No, they're gathering together as elders. And they begin to debate this issue. You'll notice that an appeal is made. There's a faction in the church at this time. There is division over whether or not we should keep the law of Moses, and particularly the, the circumcising of men for the necessity of salvation and the keeping of the Mosaic laws and customs of the day. And you'll note that in verse 2 it says that when Paul and Barnabas in verse 15, uh, chapter 15 of Acts, verse 2, when therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them. That's just a light way of saying there was a big debate. This wasn't a little debate, this was a big debate. Why? Because the Apostle Paul was now going and preaching the gospel to Gentiles. And there were certain Jews saying, well, you got to give this Mosaic sign to Gentiles that know nothing about the law of God. They know nothing about the ceremonial law. They know nothing about Jew, uh, Judaic uh, Christian, uh, excuse me, Judaic values. And you got to get them to be like Jews in order to be saved. And Paul had a big problem with that, as well as the apostle Peter. Peter had a big problem with that, for he said in verse 10, in this debate that was taking place at Jerusalem, Now therefore why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? You want to place the law upon the Gentiles? We can't even bear the law. And you want them to keep the entirety of the law to be saved? Verse 11, But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. And then there was more discussion. And then you have finally last James stepping forward and him speaking. But I want you to notice that this decision that was reached at Jerusalem by the collective body of the elders did not just stay at Jerusalem. That a letter was written, and that letter was to be sent out to all the churches. And note a decision that was made by the elders for the Gentiles. Look with me in verse 19. You have James saying this in Acts 15, 19. Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God but that you write unto them. He said, this is what you need to write to the Gentiles. This is all that we want to tell them they need to do. They, they abstain from the pollutions of idols and from fornication, from things strangled, and from blood. And then we read in verse 23, and they wrote letters by them after this manner. And you can read the letter that is there given. But we see that then there were some men chosen, particularly Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas were chosen, but we read in, uh, that uh, 
they went out and they began to distribute and make known what was uh, written in these letters. And notice with me in Acts 16 and verse 4, that as they went through the cities, it is Paul and Barnabas, John Mark and others, uh, that as they went through the cities, they delivered them, that is to the churches, the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders, which were at Jerusalem. Now note how the early church worked. This is not independency. If this was independency, it would simply be the church of Jerusalem alone making this decision. And it is only binding upon the church of Jerusalem. But notice this decision made by the elders was binding, not just upon the church of Jerusalem, but the church at large. That they would send men to go with these letters And these were decrees that they were to keep. These were not questionable. These were things that the church had to do. The body of elders actually possessed authority to make doctrinal decisions. For the church at large, it becomes binding upon the congregation. And this is a means of protecting the doctrinal purity and the doctrinal unity of the church at large. So we see that there's a clear connection between the churches, not an independency and autonomy among the churches, but there is a connection, a decision made that becomes binding upon all congregations. This is the farthest thing from independency. Some bodies of elders' decisions extended beyond the local flock to the surrounding area. This decision went beyond Jerusalem to the surrounding area, and that decision was binding then upon the Gentiles and upon the churches. You say, well, how did that work? Certainly if we did something like that today, certainly we had a church that operated like this in Acts 15 and 16. It would cause all sorts of problems and people would rebel and people would leave and people would get tired of that. But notice what happened in verse 5. So were the churches established in the faith. And this decision by the elders actually put, if you will, steel into the back of the church. It caused there to be grit. It caused there to be doctrinal unity. It caused them to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It was a protective decision that was made to protect the doctrinal uh, integrity of the church. But notice not only were they established in the faith, but then they increased in number daily. Do you realize the effect of proper church government? If we we practice proper church government, this should be the outworking of Presbyterianism. We deliver the decrees for the churches to keep. It establishes the people in the faith. And then they increase in number daily. That should be the outworking of Presbyterianism. The increasing of the church. It should be the decision here made by the presbytery was binding, it was protective, and it was productive. This decision allowed the true gospel to shine forth. The gospel brings multitudes to Christ. Proper order brought church growth. This is something for us to notice. This is why it matters. Remember, as I spoke about uh, the church a couple of weeks ago, New Testament pattern. I read the passage in one of Paul's epistles, I believe it was to Timothy, where he said, I joy. I think, excuse me, that was Colossians. I joy and I behold your order. There's something about order. There's something about following the God's divine pattern. And part of that pattern is church government. So there was a privilege of appeal to the assembly of elders and the right for the church to speak. And this is good for us. Let me just play it out practically for you. Say we are in the church and you have a pastor and the church has grown. And say a decision is made by the group of elders, by the assembly of elders of your church that you're not very happy with. You think it was a very poor decision, the vast majority of the congregation... And say, you know what, that was a really bad decision the elders made. 
And in independency, there's nothing you could do. You could just speak to your elders, and it And if you don't like the decision that the elders come back with, either you have to live with it or you have to leave. But in Presbyterianism, if the elders, you go before your elders, and you say, well, you know what, we didn't really like the decision that was made about this particular issue. We think this should have been done, and we are all in agreement. And you guys would disagree with us. And the elders get together, they meet about it, and they are still uh, committed to their decision. You as a congregation, you as an individual, have a right to appeal that decision to the presbytery at large. You say, you know what, I don't like this decision that was made. I think it was unscriptural, and I think that the elders need to be held accountable about this decision. You can actually appeal to presbytery, and the presbytery at large can deal with that issue. There is what is known as courts of appeal. We have that in our own country. We have courts of appeal, where you move up the chain and and, in positions of authority and decision, and so it is in Presbyterian government. Of course, in our own denomination, we only have a presbytery. There is no synod of churches in a general area. And then a general assembly uh, that encompasses all the churches. You would have to have a much larger Presbyterian denomination for that. But this is good for elders and church people alike. The sixth thing I want you to notice with me, and we're almost done. The sixth thing that marks Presbyterian government is the only head of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we know this should go without saying. Independency would acknowledge this. Church of England would not acknowledge this. Church of England says, no, the king, the queen, she or he is the head of the church. The Roman Catholic Church would disagree with this. They would not say that Christ is the head of the church. They said, no, the pope is the head, he is the vicar of the church. We we know from passages such as Ephesians 5.23 that he is the head of the body. Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body. A body of elders, a body of deacons, a body of bishops are not the head of the church. There's only one head. Anything with more heads is a monster. And there's only one true church, there's only one true king of the church, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the elders' responsibility as they meet together to consult the head. You see, the elders of a local congregation are under-shepherds. Christ is the great shepherd, and they receive their marching orders from the chief shepherd. And they as under-shepherds are to portray the mind of the shepherd to the congregation and to lead them in the ways of the Lord. The seventh thing, and last of all I want you to notice, is that office bearers were subject to the body of elders of the region in which bounds they ministered, in which bounds they ministered. The, the, the thing you need to understand about Presbyterianism is that the Bible clearly teaches that there were what was known as regional churches. Regional churches. Just turn with me quickly to the book of Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1, and look with me in verse 2. It says, To all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. There is a region of churches. Galatia is not a city, it is a region. He's speaking about the regional church of Galatia. You'll notice again in Galatians 1.22, And was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, which are in Christ. Here's a reference to another geographical location. Here are regional churches, and it's very likely that these regional churches had their own presbytery, their own synod, and eventually they would gather together as a general assembly to discuss the issues. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2 speaks about the church of God which is at Corinth in the singular. 1 Corinthians 14.34, speaking about proper order in the church, speaks about... How, a woman or, how women are to be speaking in the churches. So there was a plurality of churches in the Corinth areas, speaking about a regional church. So the Bible clearly teaches that there is not just local autonomous churches, 
But you can speak of the church universal. You can speak of regional churches as we see here. And you can speak about local churches that is as well in the scripture. But we see last of all that office bearers were subject to the body of elders in the region in which they went to. And Paul is a demonstration of this. Look last of all with me in Acts 21. The last scripture we will look at in Acts 21. In Acts 21, verse 17, we have Paul going to Jerusalem. And he actually here, uh, in verse 17, And when they were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. So notice Paul meets with the elders of the regional church there in Jerusalem. And he gave them then the details about what God was doing among the Gentiles. Then look with me at verse 23. Notice what the elders say. Do therefore this that we say to thee. We have four men which have a vow on them. And they go on to explain to Paul about the need of taking this vow. But since Paul was teaching concepts that were contrary to Judaism, they gave him instructions on how he should conduct himself in their region. Paul had to come uh, into their district and was subject to their authority, though he be an apostle. This is amazing. Paul is an apostle. He could have exercised apostolic authority and said, you know what, I think you're wrong. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I am the apostle Paul. I speak for God. But notice Paul comes and he actually submits to the authority of this body of elders at Jerusalem. Paul took a vow because he was subject to these elders of the region in which bounds he was ministering. And so this actually instructs us that even ministers of the gospel and Presbyterianism, they are not mavericks. They don't just get to do what they want to do the time if I go to another area to preach the gospel even if I was to go to another church I am under the authority if you will of that session I'm not going to do something against their will so in conclusion next week Lord willing when we gather together we have looked at the doctrinal matter of the church we have looked at the doctrinal reasoning for Presbyterianism. And if you were to take all these seven points, the only go church government structure that fits into this is Presbyterianism. Independency will not fit into what I presented to you today. Neither will Episcopalianism or the Roman Catholic Church or the Methodist Church or any Episcopal church government. Only Presbyterianism. And Lord willing, next week, I want us to look at the implications then of Presbyterianism. If this be true, if this be the doctrinal teaching of the Bible, what is the outworking then of this in our own lives, in our own church life? And that's what we want to consider next week. So after considering all the marks, there is only one form of church government that fits the bill. And that is Presbyterianism. And if it was not the case, then I would not be standing here before you today. I'm convinced that the Bible teaches this church model. And if this is so, then why so many other church governments? Are there not good men that are Baptist? Absolutely. Are there not good men that are Episcopalian? Absolutely. I think about J.C. Ryle, the greatest... Episcopal Church of England minister who probably preached the gospel more clearly than some other Presbyterians or Baptists. What a great man he was. But I disagree with Ryle and his view of church government. There are different interpretations. That's why there's various denominations. But yet we are united around the same gospel, the same gospel of God's grace. So what good is a position if it cannot be proven from the Scripture? So that's what I've sought to do today. So many people will say, well, I'm a Presbyterian. And someone asks you, well, why are you a Presbyterian? Well, I don't know. I just, we're Reformed. You know, they believe in Reformed theology. So that's why I'm a Presbyterian. Let me inform you. Being a Presbyterian is more than embracing the tulip. 
It's more than embracing the five points of Calvinism. To be thoroughly reformed, you must go beyond just the five points of Calvinism. And it begins to affect your view of church government. The way the church is structured, the view of the sacraments, all these things come into play. We must be thoroughly reformed, not just in one area of our lives, but in the entirety of our lives. This is the biblical model that we must strive to follow as a biblical church. And may we do so to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of the Lord today. We thank you for the truths of Holy Scripture. God, would you stamp these truths upon our hearts and upon our minds. God, I pray that this doctrinal teaching has been helpful and instructful to thy people. God, there may have been those listening and those even gathered here that had no understanding of why they were a Presbyterian and could not even defend their position for being a Presbyterian. God, I pray that today that they could leave here saying, you know what, I know why today I am a Presbyterian. I know why I hold to these positions and why I believe that this is the proper form of church government. And God, as we have seen in your word, God, when this proper government was worked out, it caused the church to be edified and built up in the faith and it caused many to be swept into the kingdom. How we pray, O God, for our own day within our own denomination, God, a proper outworking of church government to the extent that it would sweep many souls into the gospel, into the kingdom of God. So God, we pray that you would allow the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart now to be acceptable in thy sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. We ask it all in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.